Section 74 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 19, Tendencies of European Thought in the Age of the Reformation, by the Rev. A. M. Fairbairn, Part 3. We have not as yet approached the French Renaissance, which has indeed an interest and character of its own. It was, while less philosophical, more strictly educational, literary, and juristic than the Italian, and may be described as both Teutonic and Latin in origin. It entered the north and penetrated as far as Paris with the Adagia of Erasmus, published in 1500. But it reached the south from Italy, crossing the Alps with the gentlemen of France, who accompanied their kings on those excursions which had, as Montaigne tells us, so fateful an influence on the French morals and mind. Correspondent to this difference in origin was a difference in spirit and in the field of activity. In the north the Renaissance made its home in the schools and worked for the improvement of the education, the amelioration of the laws and the reform of religion, as names like Budet, Pierre de la Ramée, and Bézat may help us to realize. But in the South it was more personal and less localized, its learning was near akin to culture than to education, and it loved literature more than philosophy. Hence the forms it assumed in France can hardly be said to call for separate discussion here. Especially is this true of its more northern form. A better case might be made for the Southern. To it belong the great names of Rabelais and Montaigne, but their place is in a history of literature rather than of thought, though both affected the course of the latter too profoundly to be left unmentioned here. Coleridge has said that Rabelais was among the deepest as well as boldest thinkers of his age, that the rough stick he used yet contained a rod of gold, and that a treatise could be written in praise of the moral elevation of his work which would make the church stare and the conventicle groan, and yet would be the truth and nothing but the truth. These may seem hard sayings, utterly incredible if portions of his work are alone regarded, but accurate enough if the purpose and drift of his teaching as a whole be considered. It has been well said that the confession of faith of the curé of Meudon has far more moral reality than that which Rousseau puts into the mouth of his Savoyard vicar. He believes that the universe needs no other governor than its creator, whose word guides the whole and determines the nature, properties, and condition of each several thing. Pascal's famous definition of deity a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere, is but an echo from Rabelais. And he can, with the wisest of the ancients and the best of the moderns, speak of the great soul of the universe which quickens all things. La Bruyère described his work as a chimera. It has the face of a beautiful woman, but the tail of a serpent. Yet surely the man who had to wear the mask of a buffoon that he might preach the wisdom of truth and love to his age well deserves the epigram which Bézat wrote in his honor. Qui sic nugatur tractantem ut seria vincat, seria cum faciet dicrogo quantus erit. 
Montaigne is of all Frenchmen the most thoroughly a son of the Renaissance. He loves books, especially the solid and sensible and well-flavored books written in the ancient classic tongues, the men who made and those who read them, and he loved to study men. He says, Je suis moi-même la matière de mon livre, and he does not understand himself in any little or narrow sense, but rather as the epitome and mirror of mankind. The world in which he lived was not friendly to the freedom of thought which was expressed in affirmative speech or creative conduct, and so he learned to be silent or skeptical. He had seen men hate each other, willingly burn or be burned out of love to God, and he was moved by pity to moralize on the behavior of those who were so positive where they could not know, and so little understood the God in whom they professed to believe, that they never saw what the love of him bound them to be and to do. The man that he studied and described was not abstract but concrete man, with all his foibles and failings, limited in his nature but infinite in his views, differing without ceasing from his fellows, and not always able to agree with himself. And man so conceived dwells amid mystery, has it within him and confronts it without. Custom may guide him, but not reason. For reason builds on arguments whose every position depends on another, in a series infinitely regressive. Les hommes sont tourmentés par les opinions qu'ils ont des choses, non par les choses mêmes. Where man is so ignorant, he ought not to be dogmatic. Where truth is what all seek and no one can be sure that he finds, i.e. where it is nothing but a mere probability, it is a folly to spill human blood for it. God is unknown even in religion. As many as the nations of men, so many are the forms under which he is worshipped. And when they try to conceive and name him, they degrade him to their own level. God is made in the image of man rather than man in the image of God. To the Ethiopian he is black, to the Greek he is white and lithe and graceful. To the brute he would be bestial, and to the triangle, triangular. Man, then, is so surrounded with contradictions that he cannot say what is or is not true. Wisdom was with Sextus Empiricus when he said, Panti logoi logos isus antiquetae. Il y a nulle raison qui n'en ait une contraire, dit le plus sage parti des philosophes. Where man so doubts, he is too paralyzed to fight or to affirm. Montaigne's sympathies might be with those who worked and suffered for a new heaven and a new earth, but his egoism inclined to the conventional and followed the consuetudinary. Prévost Paradol termed him une perpétuelle leçon de tempérance et de modération. But this is a lesson which men of culture may read contentedly, while those who struggle to live or to make life worth living will hardly find in it the gospel they need. We turn now to the Teutonic Renaissance. Like the Latin, it began as a revolt against the sovereignty of Aristotle. But unlike the Latin, its literary antecedents were patristic and biblical rather than classical. They were indeed, so far as patristic, specifically Augustinian, and so far as biblical, Pauline. 
with Augustine the underlying philosophy was Neoplatonic, with a tendency to theosophy and mysticism. With Paul the theology involved a philosophy of human nature and human history. This does not mean that other fathers or other scriptures were ignored, but rather that Paul was interpreted through Augustine and Christ through Paul. This fundamental difference involved two others. In the first place, a more religious and more democratic temper, the religious being seen in the attempt to realize the new ideals, and the democratic in the strenuous and combatant spirit by which alone this could be accomplished. The thought which lived in the schools could not resist the authority that spoke in the name of the church and was enforced by the penalties of the state. But the thought which interpreted God to the conscience was one that bowed to no authority lower than his. In the second place, Teutonic was more theological than Latin thought. The categories which the past had formulated for the interpretation of being, it declined to accept. And so it had to discover and define those which it meant to use in their stead. The God with whom it started was not an abstract and isolated but a living and related deity, and man it conceived sub specie eternitatis, as a being whom God has made and ruled. The very limitation of its field was an enlargement of its scope. Its primary datum was the eternal God, and its secondary was the created universe, especially the man who bore the image of his Maker. This man was no mere individual or insulated unit, but a race, a connected, coherent, organic unity. The human being was local, but human nature was universal. Before the individual could be, the whole must exist. And so man must be interpreted in terms of mankind, rather than mankind in the terms of the single and local man. And this signified that in character as well as in nature the race was a unity. The past made the present the hair became as his inheritance, and so any change in man had to be effected by the maker and not by those he had made. And here Augustine pointed the way to the goal which Paul had reached. The will of God had never ceased to be active, for it was infinite, and it could not cease to be gracious, for it was holy and perfect. Therefore from this will, since man's nature was by his corporate being and his inevitable inheritance evil, all the good he could ever be or achieve must come. This fundamental idea was common to the types most characteristic of the Teutonic Renaissance. It was expressed in Luther's Servum Arbitrium, in Zwingli's Providentia Actuosa, in Calvin's Decretum Absolutum. These all signified that the sole casualty of good belonged to God, that grace was of the essence of his will, and that where he so willed, man could not but be saved, and where he did not so will, no amelioration of state was possible. But this must not be interpreted to mean that man had been created and constituted of God for darkness rather than light. On the contrary, these thinkers all agree in affirming a universal light of nature, i.e. ideas implanted in us by the Creator, or, as Melanchthon phrased it, notitiae nobiscum nascentes divinitus sparse in mentibus nostris. 
In this position they were more influenced by Paul than by Augustine. With the Apostle they argued that the moral law had been written in the heart before it was printed on tables of stone, and that without the one the other could neither possess authority nor be understood. But they also argued that knowledge without obedience was insufficient, and therefore they held God's will to be needed to enable man both to will and to do the good. But their differences of statement and standpoint were as instructive as their agreements. When Luther affirmed the absolute bondage of the will, and Calvin the absolute decree of God, the one looked at the matter as a question of man's need, the other as a question of God's power. And so they agreed in idea, though they differed in standpoint. Yet the difference proved to be more radical than the agreement. And so when Zwingli said he would rather share the eternal lot of a Socrates or a Seneca than that of the Pope, he meant that God willed good to men who were outside the Church or the Covenants, without willing the means which both Luther and Calvin conceived to be necessary to salvation. It is through such differences as these that the types and tendencies of Teutonic thought must be conceived and explained. Luther's article of a standing or failing church, justification by faith alone, is the positive side of the idea which is negatively expressed as the bondage of the will, and the idea, in both its positive and negative forms, implies a philosophy of existence which may be stated as a question thus. How is God, as the source of all good, related to man as the seed and servant of evil? God and man, good as identical with God and evil as inseparable from man, are recognized, and the problem is, how is the good to overcome the evil? The man who frames the problem is a mystic. God is the supreme desire and delight of his soul and he conceives sin as a sort of inverted capacity for God, the dust which has stifled a thirst and turned it into an infinite misery. Now, Luther has two forms under which he conceives God's relation to man, a juristic denoted by the term justification, and a vital denoted by the term faith. Justification is the acquittal of the guilty. Faith is nothing else than the true life realized in God. The one term thus describes the universe as ethically governed, while the other describes man as capable of participating in the eternal life, and the two together mean that he can realize his happiness or his end only as he shares the life of God and lives in harmony with his law. The philosophy here implied is large and sublime, though its intrinsic worth may be hidden by the crudity of its earliest forms. The Lutheran doctrine of the communicatio idiomatum attempts, for example, to establish a kind of equation between the ideas of God and man. The person of Christ is a symbol of humanity. In it, man can so participate as to share its perfections and dignity. Christ's humanity is capable of deity. God lives in him now openly, now cryptically, but ever really and his humanity so penetrates the deity as to touch him with a feeling of our infirmities and to make him participant in our lot as we are in his life. 
This is the very root and essence of German mysticism, which gives the German hymns their beauty and their pathos, which inspired the speculations of Brandt's and Chemnitz, and which later determined Schelling's doctrine of indifference, or the identity of subject and object, and Hegel's absolute idealism. If we read Burma from this point of view, how splendid his dreams, and how reasonable his very extravagances become. We are not surprised to hear him speak of the necessity of antitheses to all being, and especially to the life and thought of God, of evil being as necessary as good, or wrath as essential as love in God, who is the fundament of hell as well as of heaven, both the everlasting no and the eternal yes. He dwells in nature as the soul dwells in the body. There is no point in the body where the soul is not, no spot in space and no atom in nature where we can say, God is not here. The man who is his image, who is holy as he is holy, good as he is good, is of no other matter than God. This may be pantheism, but it is not rational and reasoned like Bruno's. It is emotional and felt, a thing of imagination all compact. It is born of the love that loses the sense of personal distinctness and identity in the joy not of absolute possession, but of being possessed. Verma says that the process of nature conceal God, but that the spirit of man reveals him. And how can it reveal a God it does not know? But the spirit that has never seen and touched deity has never known him or been so one with him as to know him as he knows himself. Here lives the very soul of Luther and the essence of all his thought. Burma's friend and biographer describes him as a little man of mean aspect, thin voice, snubbed nose, but eyes blue as heaven, bright and gleaming like the windows of Solomon's temple. And he lived in harmony with lines which he wrote with his own toil-stained hand. Wem Zeit ist wie Ewigkeit und Ewigkeit wird Zeit. Der ist befreit von allem Streit. Of course, such a change as Luther instituted could not but powerfully affect the minds of men. But certain concomitants must not be set down as effects. And the Peasants' War had its causes in centuries of German history, though among its occasions must be reckoned the ideas which the Reformation had thrown, as it were, into the air. But quite otherwise was it with the Anabaptist movement. While it sprang up and flourished in provinces and cities where its fingly was potent, as well as in places more expressly Lutheran, yet it belonged more specifically to the Lutheran than to the Reformed Church. To discuss its causes and forms would carry us far beyond our available space. It is enough to say, the principle of parity which it emphasized was more antagonistic to the one church than to the other. Luther created his church by the help of princes. Calvin founded his on the goodwill of the people. The system that claimed fullest freedom for the individual could find less fault with the latter than with the former. And it is significant that the heresies which troubled the Lutherans were largely political and social, while those which afflicted the Reformed were mainly intellectual and moral. In nothing is the character of a society more revealed than in the heresies to which it is most liable.
Zwingli and Kelvin alike conceived God under the category of will, and construed man and history through it. Both held faith to be a consequence of, rather than a condition for, election. Man believed because God had so decreed, and into his will every step in their upward or downward progress was resolved. Now, this emphasis on the will of God necessarily threw into prominence the ideas of God and will, with the result that the main varieties of opinion in the Reformed Church concerned these two ideas. If the will of God was the supreme and sole causality in all human affairs, and if the will always was as the nature was, it became a matter of primary consequence to know what kind of being God was, and what he is nature and character. This question was early and potently raised, and in a most significant quarter. Zanchius, himself an Italian, who so emphasized the will of God as to anticipate Spinoza and represent God as the only free being in nature and the sole cause of history, wrote in 1565 to Bullinger, warning him against being too easy in the matter of credentials of orthodoxy, as he had many heretical compatriots. Hispanus servetus gallinas peperit, Italia fovet ova, nosiam pipientes pullos audimus. And it is curious that the attempts to find a simpler conception of God than Calvin's or to modify his notion of the will by the notion of the deity whose will it was, came mainly from men of Latin stock. Servetus was the son of a Spanish father and a French mother. Lelio and Fausto Sozzini, uncle and nephew, the one the father of the doctrine, the other of the sect, which respectively bear their name, were Italians, as were also Bernardino Occhino, who wrote a once-famous book concerning the freedom and bondage of the will, the labyrinth, in which he argued that man ought to act as if he were free, but when he did good he was to give all the glory to God as if he were necessitated. And Celio Secondo Curione, who desired to enlarge the number of the elect till it should comprehend Cicero as well as Paul, while Sebastian Castellio, who is described by some contemporaries as French, though by others as Italian, as a matter of fact he was born in a Savoyard village not far from Geneva, argued that as God is good, his will must be the same, and if all had happened according to it, there could have been no sin. These views may be regarded as the recrudescence of the Latin Renaissance in the Reformed Church, and are marked as attempts to bring in a humaner and sweeter conception of God. They failed, possibly because of the severity and efficiency of the Reformed legislation, or possibly because they did not reckon with the Augustinian sense of sin, or most probably for reasons which were both political and intellectual. It is indeed strange that positions so strongly rational and so well and powerfully argued should not have been maintained and crystallized into important religious societies. But, as Burma helps us to see, the man who knows himself to be evil expects and appreciates wrath as well as mercy in God. This may be the reason why the attempts made by some of the finest minds of the 16th century to soften the severer ideas of deity, 
seem to their contemporaries heresies and seem to the student of history ineffective failures. The problem was soon attacked from another side. The field in which the will of God was exercised was the soul of man. That will concerned, therefore, him and his acts. If these acts were done because God had so determined, then two consequences followed. The acts would show the quality of the will, and the man would not be consciously free, would know himself an instrument rather than an agent. The criticism from these points of view was mainly northern. Those who urged it did so in the interests of man and morality. In Calvin's own lifetime, the doctrine of foreordination, or of the operation of the divine will in its relation to human affairs, was assailed by two men. Albert Pigius, a Catholic from the Netherlands, and Jérôme Hermès Bolsec, a Parisian, an unfrocked Carmelite monk, who had turned physician and had for a time been closely attached to Calvin. The former argued that if God was the absolute cause of all events and acts, then to him we owed not only the goodness of the good, but the wickedness of the wicked. The second, that if faith is made the consequence rather than the condition of election, then God must be charged with partiality. But towards the end of the century a more serious movement took place. The question of the divine will had exercised the Reformed theologians, especially as criticism had compelled them to consider it in relation to sin as well as to salvation, i.e. both as to the causation of the state from which man was to be saved, and as to his deliverance from it. Certain of the more vigorous Reformed divines, including Beza himself, said that the decree in date precedes the fall for what was first in the divine intention is last in execution. The first thing was the decree to save, but if man is to be saved, he must first be lost. Hence the fall is decreed as a consequence of the decreed salvation. But the milder divines said that the decree of God takes the existence of sin for granted, deals with man as fallen, and elects or rejects him for reasons we cannot perceive, though it clearly knows and regards. The former were known by the name of supralapsarians, and the latter by the name of sublapsarians. In the 17th century an acute and effective criticism was directed against both forms of the belief, which, although it falls beyond our scope, must receive passing notice here. Jacobus Arminius, Jacob Hermann, a Dutch preacher and professor, declined to recognize the doctrine as either scriptural or rational. He held that it made God the author of sin, that it restricted his grace, that it left the multitudes outside without hope, that it condemned multitudes for believing the truth, viz., that for them no salvation was either intended or provided in Christ, and it gave an absolutely false security to those who believed themselves to be the elects of God. The criticism was too rational to be cogent, for it was, as it were, an assertion of the rights of man over against the sovereignty of God, and it involved the men who pursued it in the political controversies and conflicts of the time. The Armenians were most successful when the argument proceeded on principles supplied by the conscience and the consciousness of man, and the Calvinists when they argued from the majesty and the might of God. 
but if the Armenians were dialectically victors, they were politically vanquished. The men who organized authority in Holland proved stronger than those who pleaded and suffered for freedom. There are still large fields of thought to be traversed before we can do even approximate justice to the mind of Protestantism, but our space is exhausted. All we can do now is to drop a hint as to what was intended. We should have wished to sketch the Renaissance that followed the Reformation as fully as the literary revival which preceded it. Theodore Bizat is a man whose fame as a Genevan legislator and divine has eclipsed his name as a scholar and educator. But it ought not to be forgotten that he was an elegant humanist before he became a convinced reformer, and his most fruitful work was done in the provinces of sacred learning and exegesis. The Estienne, Robert and Henri are potent names in the history of Greek and Roman letters. They accomplished much for the languages and the literatures which they loved, Robert, in particular, standing out as a devoted friend of religion and of science, for both of which he made immense sacrifices. Our Textus Receptus, with its division into verses, are witnesses to his zeal. Joseph Scaliger and Isaac Kazaban had the merit of awakening the envy, which was but inverted admiration, and the supple hate, which was like the regret of the forsaken, of the society whose mission it was to roll back the advancing tide of the freer thought that had come to quicken interest in letters. While Gerard Jan Bossius construed the classical mythology through religion, and both through Old Testament history, in a way that contributed to form comparative science in the regions of thought, religion, and language. Protestant scholars had a larger and more realistic way of looking at classical problems than the men of the earlier Renaissance, and by its dissociation from polity and custom, Teutonic thought, even while it seems narrower in scope, is yet far wider in outlook and interest than Latin. It goes into a more distant past, and rises to higher altitudes. It came as a revolt, but it grew into a development. It continued free from the authority that would have suppressed it, and used its freedom to achieve results which the more flattered Latin mind panted after in vain. France continued in the 17th century the literary activity of Italy in the 16th. But speculation loves freedom and refused to live where it could not be free. The events which emancipated England from monotonous uniformity in religion set the problems that had been the main factors in her historical development, and the chief causes of her philosophical activity and her literary greatness. Modern thought is the achievement of Northern and Central Europe, but it is the possession of universal man. End of section 74 End of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation